Hey there, deserving listeners. It's just me today. I thought I would respond to an email from a listener. Listener Jennifer asked a while back for us to do an, ep- to do an episode about the Cable Guy movie and whether or not Jim Carrey's character has borderline personality disorder or not, because she heard that this movie is being used as a good example of borderline. So apparently the Cable Guy movie, Cable Guy with Jim Carrey and Matthew Broderick, the Cable Guy apparently is being used as a as an example of borderline personality disorder, and I thought we would talk about that. But first, let me introduce the podcast. This is Psychology in Seattle, and it is a podcast. And my name is Dr. Kirk Honda, and I'm a professor and a licensed therapist. So let's just get into the diagnosis, and then afterwards I'll talk about the movie itself and some of the importance in the American cinema history it has. Okay, um, so first off, when, when we look at the DSM and we look at the borderline personality disorder criteria, we uh, first see that it, it requires the uh, problem. I'm not speaking very well right now. <laughs> the words are not coming out, but in the DSM, it says it has to be a pervasive pattern, a pervasive pattern. That's often the language used with personality disorders. And when we look at Jim Carrey's character in The Cable Guy, we can say, yes, it's a pervasive pattern, seemingly anyway, in the time span that we have to look at his character on screen. It seems as though in the past he was probably like this and he'll be like this in the future. There's even a little ending bit in which he seemingly starts the cycle all over again. But I will say that there was one moment where the the pattern didn't seem to be at play, and that was in the final scene when he, uh, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen, this is a 20-year-old movie, if you haven't seen it, um, there's a ending scene where Jim Carrey's character decides to altruistically commit suicide. And he is trying to uh, do something that's good for society, kind of for the first time. So you could say that a pervasive pattern for the most part until the end. But, you know, if we're looking at an actual human being, we could say a a temporary lapse of the personality is not... uh, it doesn't necessarily mean the person doesn't meet the criteria for personality disorder. So we'll say pervasive pattern, question mark, yes. Pervasive pattern of personality. Okay, number two, instability of interpersonal relationships. Absolutely. Jim Carrey's character, the cable guy, has uh, unstable relationships with apparently his, I think his ex-wife or ex-girlfriend, but the in particular with regards to Matthew Broderick's character, with Matthew Broderick's family, you know, unstable relationships for sure. Okay, so we'll say yes to that. Number three, beginning in early childhood. So that the pattern has to begin in early childhood. This we do not know. We have no data regarding his, or sorry, early adulthood. So the personality, most personality disorders are defined, if not all, as having beginning in early adulthood and persisting, you know, for a time. And so, uh, for in other words, you uh, under the definition of borderline, 
if you don't meet any of the criteria meaningfully and then suddenly at the age of 55 you start exhibiting borderline features, then according to the DSM, you can't be diagnosed with borderline. So, you know, use your own kind of judgment there. But, you know, seemingly so, he probably had these symptoms since early adulthood. There doesn't seem to be, and I think his character is a young man. I think he's supposed to be in his 20s, so he's he's a young adult already. Okay, number four. The person has to present the symptoms in a, in a variety of contexts, meaning at work, at home, with friends, at the mall. You know, the the symptoms have to be present in a variety of contexts. And we can say that, yes, seemingly this is true. He appears to have been fired for his behavior as a cable guy. Spoiler alert, he is revealed at the end that he's actually not a, a real cable guy, that he's just acting like a cable guy. He seemingly act, acted in this borderline-y way with everybody. So, yeah, we'll say a variety of contexts. In other words, with some people, they might exhibit particular difficulties, say, at home, but when they're at work or when they're with their family, other family members, they don't exhibit any of these symptoms. And therefore, since it's only exhibiting itself in one context, then we have to look at that context rather than the person's personality. Number five, frantic efforts to avoid abandonment. Yes, absolutely. If you've seen this movie, you know that Jim Carrey's character frantically tries to avoid being abandoned by Matthew Broderick's character. He is desperate to keep Matthew Broderick's friendship. He hates being abandoned. He made sure that Broderick actually had to be his friend, seemingly at any cost. He would blackmail him to be his friend. He would give him you know, lavish gifts. He would kind of force him to be a friend. Uh, he manipulated Broderick to be in, indebted to him and tried to isolate Broderick from his friends. So Jim Carrey's character did a lot to avoid being abandoned by Matthew Broderick. Ironically, it's that very behavior that causes people to abandon him and people who, who have borderline. Okay, number six, alternating between extreme idealization and extreme devaluation of other people. Absolutely. So this is the cornerstone of borderline in that people will people with borderline personality disorder will tend to um, follow a particular pattern of idealizing people and then hating them and, and thinking that they're terrible human beings. It's, it's a hallmark of borderline. You will, uh, upon talking with someone with borderline, you'll hear them talk about past relationships frequently in this way. They will say, oh, you know, yeah, sure, that person was my best friend, but I hate them now because of the way that they treated me. Uh, they'll, they'll tend to have a lot of past best friends or past spouses that they now completely hate. Not to say that hating your past friends is, a, is you know, automatically meaning that you have borderline, but because people with borderline have been abandoned, and this is actually not included in the DSM because the DSM doesn't talk about causes of behavior or causes of uh, 
you know, personality disorders. People with borderline have been relationally traumatized uh, in a severe way when they were younger. If you have been abandoned, abused, sexually abused, if you've been mistreated over a long period of time, if you've had a, you know, a borderline parent yourself, then you're going to grow up with a deep attachment wound. And the, and therefore, but at the same time, you desperately, like anybody else, want to attach to other people. So if you have these extreme wounds from your past and you meet someone new and you like them, you know, you seem to hit it off, then you instantly idealize that person because you are so desperate for a friend, for someone that you can attach to, for someone you can trust, for someone who is loyal to you, that you will idealize them. They're the best. And therapists will often fall victim to, to this because therapists naturally really want to be good therapists, right? And, and since everyone's insecure, including therapists, um, when a therapist comes across someone who's borderline and the borderline person in the first month idealizes you, you know, the, the, thera- the client will be saying, you're the best therapist of all time. No one's ever listened to me this way. I, you know, I'm really uh, thinking about what you've been saying. And the person with borderline is being honest and their feelings are real. It's because they've been waiting perhaps their whole life for someone to be stable and someone to listen to them. But the problem is, is that since they're extremely sensitive naturally to being abandoned or left or hurt or, or abused in some way, whenever there's a hint of abandonment or a hint of criticism or a hint of negativity coming from the other person, the borderline person's uh, traumas, their relational traumas are triggered and they, become extremely hurt, sometimes to the point of mildly delusional, where they distort reality. You know, someone might, uh, so say you have a therapist with a borderline client, and the therapist says something like, well, you know, maybe you should think about uh, not having the job that you do. It sounds like your job's pretty stressful, you know, and, and your boss seems like a really mean person. You know, maybe this, maybe this job isn't for you. Maybe you should have a different job. Of course, any therapist out there knows you should avoid statements like that, but just using this as a for instance. From the outside, hearing that statement, you would say like, oh, okay, you know, therapist is giving advice. Maybe it's bad advice, but, but you know, okay, whatever. Well, for, for someone with borderline, again, since they have these deep wounds, they might hear that, not, not always, not automatic, but they might hear that as an extreme criticism of their inability to work at that job. The person with borderline, upon hearing that their therapist thinks they should quit their job, might think that, oh, my therapist thinks I'm a loser. My therapist thinks I can't handle this job. My therapist thinks I'm not good enough for this job. My therapist thinks I'm a child and I'm, I, I can't be like an adult. Now, that is not what the therapist is saying. But it is the kind of flavor of abuse or abandonment they received when they were young. And therefore, when there's a hint of that happening again, they see it happening, and they will naturally feel very, very hurt 
if you believe that your therapist thinks you're a, a terrible, weak, you know, incapable person, that's going to hurt your feelings. And then you're going to get angry and you're going to lash out and you're going to say, I can't believe you just said that. Why would you say just such a thing? Why would you do this to me? So it all makes sense when you understand that the person has been traumatized relationally. So in this way, people with borderline will alternate between idealizing someone that's close to them and devaluing, devaluing them, uh, that someone that's close to them. So they'll, they, because they're so desperate, like anybody for attachment, they really latch on and they really love you. And then when there's any hint of abandonment or criticism or negativity, because they're so hurt by it, and because they've sort of left them themselves so vulnerable, because they really want to depend on you, they're extremely hurt, and then they lash out, and they become extremely hostile and angry towards you. Now, when we look at the cable guy, Jim Carrey's character, we see that, yes, Jim Carrey's character absolutely does that. He thinks that he's best friends with Broderick when they first meet. He completely idealizes Broderick's character. And then when there's any hint of abandonment, he completely turns on him. Uh, throughout the movie, that's that's the plot of the movie, essentially, is the way in which Jim, Car Jim Carrey gets hurt and then lashes out. He makes his, makes Broderick's family hate him. He tries to take Broderick's girlfriend away from him. He get he gets Broderick fired from his job. And this is although so my I'll just skip to the end in terms of my main hypothesis here or my main kind of judgment is that although we could say that Jim Carrey Jim Carrey's character fits the borderline personality criteria enough to quote unquote justify uh, applying the diagnosis to him. It's a fictional character, of course. So, you know, just work with me on this. So even though he might meet the criteria, he doesn't actually, in my mind, in my clinical experience, fit the profile of someone with borderline. It's, it's, you know, it's a movie, it's fictional, it's comedy, and it's fantastical in a lot of ways. And if, if I actually met a guy like this, I would say that he is very desperate for a friend and he's insecure and he really wants to have a friend and he, and his feelings can be hurt easily. So I'd say he's like perhaps in the borderline spectrum kind of, but he doesn't fit the criteria of someone with borderline. Uh, if I, if he was a real person and I really met him, <laughs> if that makes any sense, because, and, and this is why you'll often hear me say, you can't just as a, as a non-experienced person with with personality disorders in particular you can't just look at the criteria in the DSM and claim that you understand how to apply those criteria personality disorders are extremely complex you might have heard me talk in previous episodes about people applying narcissistic personality disorder to certain political figures or or you know, people in the media and stuff. And this is, if anyone ever talks like that, in my opinion, they don't really understand personality disorders. You have to work with someone for a long time. Now, you can call someone narcissistic if you want. You can call someone having borderline type sy symptoms if you want. But if 
if you're not a clinician, one, you're not qualified to diagnose. And two, if you are a clinician and you don't understand personality disorders, then, and you don't have a lot, like just, you know, hundreds of hours working with people with personality disorders, then I don't recommend diagnosing as well. And if you do have a lot of experience, then you know, like me, that they're very difficult diagnoses to apply and, and you have to work with people for a long time. Now, this isn't my way of saying I'm better than other people or anything like that. Just I, I, all I'm saying is that whenever you know something really well and you hear people that don't know much about it talking about it and they're, and those other people are acting like they know what they're talking about, you just know how that feels, you know? Just listeners out there who listen to this podcast, think about something you're really good at, something you know well, like you're in publishing and you understand publishing, <laughs> or you're a medical professional and you understand you know, medicine, or you're an accountant, or you're uh, a parent for that matter, or you're Asian and you know Asian culture. Whenever, you know, you, all of you out there are experts in a variety of things. And I know that you have had experiences where you've heard people talk and you totally hear in, in their, in the other person's voice that they don't know what they're talking about. And, but the person is acting like they know what they're talking about. And you're just rolling your eyes thinking you clearly have no idea what you're talking about. You know, you people out there that are parents, and you, you know, understand parenting really well. You understand because you've done it day in and day out and you've talked about it and you've thought about it and maybe you've even read books and stuff. Well, when someone that doesn't have kids starts talking about parenting in this very uh, confident, boisterous way, particularly if it's a controversial topic, you can you just roll your eyes because you hear it in their voice. They clearly have no idea what they're talking about. Right. Like, um Whenever I hear people talking about kids today, you know, they'll be complaining about like, oh, teenagers, you know, they're all so selfish today and all they do is, you know, listen to terrible music and, and whatnot. And I just, I just roll my eyes because those people are, I can just, either they only know one or two teenagers or they know no teenagers and they're, and they're just going off of notions that they're picking up in the media or something. For people who actually work with teenagers on a daily basis, like teachers at a high school or middle school or parents or some other or therapists like myself, there are wonderful teenagers walking around today. There are just extremely compassionate, nice, responsible kids walking around today. In fact, I would say just on my own anecdotal evidence, and of course, that means nothing. But if I was just to pull from my anecdotal evidence, I would say teenagers are better people today than they were when I was a teenager. <laughs> when I was a teenager, there were nice people, and certainly I tried to be nice, but I kind of considered us to be little shits, quite honestly. So anyway, my point here is that I'm not saying that people should feel like they're stupid or something. What I'm saying is that when it comes to personality disorders like borderline, Understand that it's extremely complex and you need to have tens of hours, hundreds of hours working with actual people with that disorder. And then you learn what it really is like. Borderline is a very specific type of personality. 
And once you fe- and you feel it in your bones when you're with people that have borderline, and you know what that's like, and you uh, learn to identify that in other people, and so you can't just read the criteria. And so in that way, I'm my main hypothesis or my main thesis here is uh, not hypothesis thesis is that Jim character Jim Carrey's character meets the criteria, but doesn't actually. Uh, in my book, uh, really meet the criteria, if that makes any sense. Okay. So we had number six, which was um, alternating between extreme idealization and extreme devaluation. He, like I said, got, uh, he, once Broderick really abandoned him, Jim Carrey, he took a, a lot of hostile actions and, you know, took action to destroy Broderick's life. And although some might say, wow, that, that sounds stupid, of course, no one would do that. Well, actually, that is not a common thing for people with borderline, but it, it is at least an impulse, and it is uh, you know common enough of an occurrence that um, I can tell you that I know people with borderline who will actually do that. You know, think of people who will slash tires of their ex-spouses, or people who make false allegations of sexual abuse or rape or something. These are people who are extremely hostile, and sometimes these kinds of behaviors are exhibited in people with borderline. Again, it's not because they're evil, because they're not evil. People with borderline are not evil. It's because they have deep, traumatic wounds regarding being abandoned. And when they are re-abandoned by someone else as an adult, they're extremely hurt and will resort to a lot of different behaviors to cope with that extreme hurt, including hostility. And when I say extreme hurt, I'm not talking about like, oh, my feelings hurt. I'm talking about if you don't have borderline or you don't have some form of deep depression, then you will never understand the depths of the pain, the psychic pain that people with borderline go through. And I've been there with them day in and day out. The pain that they go through, it is so great that a majority of people with borderline turn to self-injury as a last resort coping mechanism to deal with the extreme mental anguish that they're going through. For many people, they don't even know what mental, mental anguish is because their attachments were strong enough and their life is, you know, go, is going well enough for them. But uh, understand that people with borderline can suffer greatly, again, because of their mistreatment uh, when they were children. And so when you're feeling that bad and you believe that someone caused you to feel that way, then you feel justified in taking revenge. If someone shoots your dog, runs over your cat, burns your house down, then you, my, my guess is you would feel justified in slashing their tires, or you would feel justified calling the cops on them and saying that they did those things. You, you would feel justified in making them pay for shooting your dog and killing your cat and burning your house down. You, you would feel that. Well, that's the way borderline people feel is... They feel so hurt and they're so upset that they 
they feel justified in their hostilities. And so Jim Carrey's character uh, feels justified in his hostility against Broderick because of the way that Broderick made him feel. Okay, number seven. Disturbance in identity or a no, no sense of self. So this is a, a very important element of Borderline that when I give lectures on this, people frequently have questions about because it's, it's the most difficult to understand. I've talked about it before in terms of not having an identity, not having a sense of self. I'll just refer you to other podcasts to hear me talk for a half an hour about that. So, you know, basically in a, in a nutshell, it's just because as a child you weren't mirrored at from your parents, you weren't, you know, for instance, with a three-year-old, when the three-year-old gets angry, you say to the child, oh, you're really angry, you're frustrated, you don't want to take a nap, I understand that. And so the child learns from that, oh, I'm angry. I, you know, They learn how to reflect on themselves. They learn how to know who they are. And their self develops in that way. For people with a sense of self, you'll, you'll never know what it's like not to have a sense of self, unless, unless you've been you know, abused or in prison or something, then you might know what it actually feels like. But anyway, people with borderline don't have that sense of self because they weren't parented well enough in that critical time when they were young. And so as a result, they end up, you know, uh, feeling empty. They'll, they'll uh, report an emptiness or being broken or something. And if we apply this, if we see if Jim Carrey, Carrey's character if we can endorse this symptom, it's hard to say. He seemed to equate his self-esteem with being able to make friends and keep friends, but he also seemed very confident, and he also seemed to have a sense of self in a lot of ways. But on the other hand, when he was rejected by Broderick, his self-esteem seemed to fall apart in a lot of ways. So it's this one was harder for me to say. All right, number eight, impulsive people with borderline are often impulsive, like spending money, impulsive sexual behavior, impulsive substance abuse, reckless driving, binge eating, other kinds of things. We can say, no, uh, there was no evidence of this that I can remember from Jim Carrey's character, aside from the final scene in which he's on top of the tower and Broderick is like, what are you planning to do? And Jim Carrey's character is like, I don't know. I don't know. I just, you know, it was impulse that I did. So, you know, it's pretty impulsive. But the rest of the movie, his behavior seems really planned. And there's a lot of very uh, non-impulsive, shall we say. Okay. Number nine, recurrent suicidal behavior or gestures or threats or self-injury. Um, there's no evidence of this other than the final scene. He was, you know, suicidal and presenting suicidal behavior and actually tried to kill himself in the final scene. Um, and maybe he's made threats before, but we didn't see that. So we could say, you know, kind of in, in that criteria. All right. Number 10, instability in affect or instability in emotions, being anxious, irritable, dysphoric. And we could say sort of he would swing between happy and extremely angry and hostile throughout the movie. And he was extremely dysphoric in the final scene, although Jim Carrey played it in a very comic way. So we could say, yeah, you know, he's uh, among the characters in the movie, he was perhaps the most emotional 
he, he had the most emotional swings, shall we say. All right, 11, chronic feelings of emptiness. There's no evidence of this that I can remember other than him not telling people his name. He refused until the end. He never told anyone his real name. So is that, an, is that evidence of emptiness? You know, it's hard to say. He also filled his head with TV quotes instead of his own thoughts. And so maybe because he felt empty on the inside and didn't have a self, he needed to turn to TV to uh, define who he was. But he never said, I have a chronic feeling of emptiness. When you talk with people with borderline and they're being honest with you, they will tell you that. They, they will say that they feel empty. They will often even use that word unprompted. They'll say they're broken. They're, they'll say they're, they're, they're nothing, that they're behind a, a thin, sen- false sense of self-esteem is a deep, deep sense of worthlessness. And uh, something even more scary than worthlessness, which is like the abyss of nothing. You know, it's one thing to have a self and to feel like that self is worthless. It's another thing to have no self at all. There, you don't have a self to be worthless or worth something. You don't have a self. And that can be, again, extremely um, difficult and terrifying to, to people. And when people with borderline face that, it is a, you know, they obviously have a lot of feelings. And so, um, and they suffer a great deal. All right. Well, uh, let's take a break. And when we get back, uh, let's continue with this talk. Okay. Okay. We're back. It is the holiday season, and if you want to do a loot crate gift for a pal or a family member or for yourself, go to lootcrate.com, use the promo code PSYCHOLOGY, and you get a discount, and we get a kickback. Also, if you're not already, please become a patron by going to patreon.com. I know that there are thousands of you that listen to this podcast every time we post an episode that uh, are not patrons yet. Many of you are patrons, and we want to thank those people because they're rad. And if you're not a patron yet, do so. You know, uh, Not only do you get all the benefits of being a patron, like no advertisements, and you get the premium episodes, and there's different kind of swag stuff that we're... But you also get to sleep better at night, knowing that you're doing your part to support a podcast that you listen to. <laughs> um uh, also, we're going to start a, a raffle for stickers <laughs> and other kind of swag for patrons. So become a patron and uh, you can get some random swag in the mail. I just today sent out a bunch of mugs, a bunch of psychology in Seattle mugs. These mugs are so cool, by the way. I wish I hadn't said so cool. I sounded very nerdy when I just said that, but they are. They're red. Um, Brad's kind of a nerdy word today too. So what, what word can I put to it? They're fly. I don't know. I I really love these mugs. Um, I actually bought one for myself and use it every day. It, the mug handle is just right. The size is just right. The, the lip, if you understand my, my warning is just right. Everything's just right. And it's got various pictures and stuff of me and Umberto on it. So um, if you're a $20 patron, then you get one of those in the mail if you live in the States. Because <laughs> if you don't, it costs like $100 to ship it to you. Um, 
So anyway, become a patron. Also, if you haven't already, become uh, a member on the new Facebook fan page called Psychology in Seattle Fan Page Thingy, and it's run by famous Patreon Linden. Okay, let's go on with the talk here. Number 12, uh, inappropriate and intense anger and difficulty controlling your anger, meaning, you know, you have a temper. We can absolutely say that Jim Carrey's character had a temper for sure. Okay, number 13, stress-related paranoid ideation. This is basically referring to the borderline tendency to, upon feeling stressed out, namely uh, feeling like you're being abandoned or hurt by someone that you care about, you know, you you feel hurt interpersonally, then you, because of the traumas you've been through, it causes you to go to places in your mind that other people might call paranoid. Let me just give an example that's not related to borderline, but to PTSD. So a friend of mine was in the war in Afghanistan and experienced IEDs, you know, the, you know, what do they call it? Improvised explosive devices, I think it's called. And one of the places that they would put these IEDs was under overpasses because I think it it causes more damage if it's under an overpass. I'm not sure. Or because the helicopters can't see you plant it. I don't know. But anyway, so when they were in Afghanistan, there was always this worry that every time they went under a bridge or an, or an overhang of any kind, that a bomb was going to go off. And this was traumatic for him. And he actually, you know, witnessed things like this. So he comes back to the States and he's in Seattle you know, which is perhaps one of the fur- furthest points on the planet away from Afghanistan. And yet, whenever he would go underneath a bridge in Seattle, he would become very stressed out that a bomb was going to go off and kill him. And if you asked him in that moment when he was highly anxious and triggered, his PTSD is triggered, he would say, well, you know, there could be a bomb. Maybe there's a bomb. And I thought I saw, I thought I saw a guy with a bomb. I thought I saw a guy with a backpack. It looked kind of suspicious. Well, from the outside, you would be, you would say, dude, that's just a guy with a backpack. No one has in the history of Seattle, you know, put a bomb in on the highway. Like that has literally never happened in Washington state or maybe even in the West coast. I don't know. So the chance that that's happening right now is extremely, uh, you know, small. You're, you're being paranoid. But on the other hand, you would understand his paranoia because of what he's been through. Okay. So if you've been traumatized relationally and been abandoned in a very uh, traumatic way and you've been mistreated in a traumatic way, then when someone shows hints you know, so you're you're mistreated, you're treated horribly as a child. You grow up and you're 35 years old, and there's a your spouse or your friend or somebody shows hints of abandoning you or criticizing you, and your trauma is triggered. It makes sense that the person would get a little paranoid. Like, I think that person hurt, hates me. Uh, you know, he he. I texted him yesterday, and he didn't text me back. I'm I'm pretty sure it means that he's having an affair on me. Or I'm pretty sure what that means is he hates me now and he doesn't ever want to be with me again. And from the outside, you're going to look at this and say, like, he, maybe he's just busy. Uh, you're being paranoid. You know, don't, 
you know, why does your brain go to such an extreme you know perhaps that's what's happening but it doesn't seem very likely and why would you want to do that and you and you always do this whenever he doesn't text you back within 5 minutes your brain always goes to this super paranoid place well this isn't because the person is choosing to be paranoid it's because of this trauma that they've been through in the same way that the guy going underneath the overpass is you know somewhat convinced there might be a bomb and so when in the DSM they talk about stress-related paranoid ideation. That's what they're talking about. And in the DSM, they don't describe that very well, you know. And when people talk about people with borderline, they'll describe it, but they won't, in my experience, describe it in the way I'm describing it in that I am providing the reasons behind it in terms of the relational trauma. People, uh, in my estimation, you or at least the way it was taught to me borderline is often talked about in uh as like well yeah some of them have been abused as children but some of them haven't really it's just you know they'll they'll talk about it in a way that doesn't link the relational trauma to the current behaviors i had to figure that out on my own honestly in terms of my work with people with with personality disorders as i learned about their histories and learned about their triggers and, you know, really, and saw them with their spouses. Cause I have borderline narcissistic histrionic people in, uh, in couple relate in couples therapy or in family therapy. And so you see how all this stuff play out and it's like, Oh, I get it. It's like, it's actually like a form of PTSD in a way. And I know I'm not the only one talking about it, but I had never heard of it before. I had to figure it out for myself. And I blame the DSM for that. I blame the, the literature on that. I, I think that uh, a lot more could be done to raise awareness regarding the, the, the very uh, similar ways in which PTSD and the cluster B personality disorders work out. Okay, anyway. So number 13 was stress-related paranoid ideation. There wasn't really any evidence of that. Uh, but kind of, you know, we could kind of see that, but Jim Carrey's character to my memory, I just watched the movie yesterday. Didn't have any parent, the sort of paranoid ideation you would see in someone with borderline. Number 14 dissociation. We don't see any evidence of Jim Carrey's character dissociating. And I have talked about dissociation in other episodes. I won't talk about it right now because it's kind of complicated, but Essentially, I didn't see any evidence. But uh, the fact that Jim Carrey's character doesn't fit a few of the criteria uh, doesn't negate the fact that he meets enough of the criteria to actually qualify for the diagnosis. But again, like I said, he um, doesn't feel like a borderline. <laughs> because, um, so, you know, it's my thesis. Other symptoms that... I would associate with borderline that are not in the DSM that is actually exhibited by Jim Carrey's character, which is Jim Carrey. People with borderline sometimes will know how to exploit people. They'll, in other words, they'll, they'll, they'll know the vulnerabilities of other people. People with borderline are very good at hurting your feelings. I'm just going to put it that bluntly. Again, it's not because they're evil. It's because they have such a long day-to-day history of being hurt themselves that 
they learn how to hurt other people's feelings, maybe by just learning about their, how their own feelings get hurt, but also because they're frequently called upon to take revenge on people who hurt them. And so they learn over time how to get underneath people's skin. If you don't have borderline and you're just a normal American and you walk up to someone on the street, you get to know them and you try to hurt their feelings, it's actually kind of hard because people have ways of defending themselves against being hurt. They have ways of masking their insecurities. Well, people with borderline, not all of them, but many people with borderline, again, because of their uh, idealization, devaluation, trauma reactivity over time, they, they become skilled at detecting the vulnerabilities that other people have. And when they turn on you, they will say things that will destroy you in an instant. <laughs> and I've experienced that as a therapist and, you know, frankly, as a, as a person, as a friend, as a family member. People with borderline, they, man, they know how to just destroy you with a word. They know exactly what is going to hurt your feelings, and they know exactly what to say. Again, not all people with borderline, but, but many of them. And again, not because they're evil, but because they feel so hurt, and they were hurt so much as children. I mean, some of them might have been uh, literally berated and, by, and preyed upon by their own parents in a way that was, uh, you know, exploited their vulnerabilities. And so they grow up mimicking that behavior of, of fine, getting ammo on other people and using it against them. Well, does Jim, does Jim Carrey's, Carrey's character exhibit this? Yes. He figured out what Broderick cared about, and then he used that against him. Okay, another symptom that's not in the DSM that's worth discussing is lonely people tend to flock to people with borderline personality disorder. That's not so much a symptom, but just something that you see a lot. Because people with borderline are so desperate for human contact and because they often sabotage themselves, they will uh, send out a lot of signals to people that they're looking for a friend. And when anyone comes around who could be a friend, they will take a lot of chances often, not all people with borderline, but many, they'll take a lot of chances to reach out to that person because they're, they're so interested in developing a loyal, dedicated, long-term relationship. And so if you're lonely and you don't have a lot of friends, then, and you meet someone, you meet, you know, someone with borderline or with borderline tendencies that match goes very well together because the person with the person who's lonely might have a tendency to isolate, might ha, might be uh, insecure themselves, and whereas the person with borderline will make a lot of gestures to reach out to you because they really want a friend, they really want someone to be loyal, as anybody does. And so, lonely people tend to kind of surround the person with borderline. And in uh, the movie, The Cable Guy, we see that, yes, Broderick's character had just been dumped by his girlfriend, and he was lonely at the time, it's, it seems, and he seemed to kind of uh, start to um, uh, 
in some way be attracted to the Cable Guy's character or to Jim Carrey's character. Okay, another thing that's not in the DSM, as I was talking about before, is people with borderline often have childhood relational trauma, particularly abandonment. And do we see this in Jim Carrey's character? Yes, absolutely. They clearly depict this in that his father just wasn't even there, so there's an abandonment by the dad. And the mom would get drunk every night and leave him at home alone with the TV, and he didn't have any siblings, so he was abandoned by both of his parents repeatedly and left to watch TV. And so that's where his uh, borderline began. Another thing that you'll often see with people with borderline is that people around them will often have to resort to drawing very firm boundaries with them, either by completely cutting off from them or establishing very firm rules of engagement. And do we see this in the movie? Yes, we do. Broderick repeatedly tries to draw a firm boundary. You know, you've all been in the situation where you have someone that is a friend, but you don't really want to be their friend anymore. And there's various different ways of breaking up with a friend subtly, right? You, you just kind of stop calling, stop texting. Maybe you unfriend them on Facebook or, you know, there's all these subtle ways of telling someone that you're just not interested anymore. Well, people with borderline don't take those hints or they do. And they become so hurt by that and so desperate that they won't let you uh, off the hook so easily. And so uh, what you have to do is you have to draw very firm boundaries and say things like, uh, stop texting me, uh, don't call me. You might have to block them on Facebook instead of just unfriend them because they might find a way back into your Facebook. You might have to block their number with the phone company. There's, There's things that you have to do. Again, not because people with borderline are evil, but because they've been hurt so much that they're so desperate for love and attention that they'll try to get you back into their life. And they'll do a lot of interesting things, shall we say, to get you back in their life. Now, I will say that in extreme cases, people with borderline can become actually evil. It's not common, but it does happen. People with narcissism, borderline... They can actually start stalking you. They can, they can even literally kill you. Again, borderline people are not prone to murder, but it's uh, when, you, when we see these extreme cases, sometimes we can trace back a personality disorder to the cause of these extreme cases. Because you can imagine if you, know, you take this to an extreme it you know stalking someone doesn't seem that unusual right again i'm i'm not equating borderline with murder uh, i don't even know the stats on that my guess is that the you know the percentage of people with borderline who murder is probably similar to the percentage of people without borderline who murder um but but stalking you know i would say I would just take a guess. I don't know the research, but I would say that people with borderline are more definitely more prone to stalking or at least being perceived as stalking, shall we say. So again, he fits the criteria, but as I was watching the movie, I never thought he was actually borderline. I thought 
He was extremely obsessed with Broderick. I thought he was really desperate for a friend. I thought he was self-destructive, as borderline people are sometimes. I thought he pushed people away with how desperate he was, which is what people with borderline will sometimes do. But I never felt like he was an actual person with borderline. Um, okay. So that is my hypothesis. Let's take a break, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about the movie, because I think it has some interesting uh, facts, some fun facts. Okay, we're back. Let's talk about the movie. Uh, there's a lot of interesting little fun facts about this movie. It was made in, or it came out in 1996. That's not one of the fun facts, but uh, there, there's a lot of very 90s things about this movie. Like the fact that uh, they show, you know, TV of the time in 1996. And at the time, Jerry Springer was perhaps at his height. All those shock talk TV shows, you know, where Jerry Springer would bring someone out and it's like, oh, this woman, she's so beautiful. But wait, she's actually a man, you know, just all that kind of stuff. It was very big in the 90s and uh, they depict that pretty well. They had uh, the No Whammies show. What was that show called? No Whammies, No Whammies. Man, I loved that show. I, it's, I don't know why, but I just really love the No Whammy show. We had answering machines. Remember answering machines? I had an answering machine, and I'd come home, and, ooh, someone called. And, you know, click, beep, and, hey, but, you know, you just answering machines. And then another part of the 90s, waiting for the cable guy. Because in the 70s and, you know, the cable really came into its own in the, in the late 80s, I would say. And there was a time uh, in our history that I remember, and if you're old enough, like me, you remember, in which most houses, most apartments didn't have an outlet for cable because no one in that, you know, home or apartment had ever had cable before. And so when you moved into a place, you frequently had to call the cable guy and the cable guy would have to come to your house. And it was a big deal. You know, it was like, Oh, we're getting cable and he's coming to the house and where should we put the outlet? And how much, you know, it costs a little bit more and then you can get two outlets and two outlets. I mean, that's crazy talk. Why would you have two outlets? No one has two TVs. People only have one TV. Uh, You know, I remember hearing about people, having more than one TV in the 90s. And I just thought, more than, why would you need more than one TV? That doesn't make any sense. And anyway, so calling the cable guy, you know, that's that's a thing in the 90s. I mean, when was the, when was the last time you had to call the cable guy? I, I feel like we were constantly calling the cable guy <laughs> in the 90s because, you know, every year I would move to another place. But anyway, also in the, the cable guy, the movie, you had CRT, you know, cathode ray tube, uh, TVs, you know, those big, bulky, TV, you know, every screen now is thin, 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 and light. And um, back then they were all CRTs. It's the end of the CRTs was the 90s. Um, the ending song is by Jerry Cantrell of the Alice in Chains. And so it's very 90s in that way. I mean, it's just so interesting that in the soundtrack itself is actually really interesting because the cable guy, it's a dark comedy, right? But throughout the movie, there's a ton of this sort of grungy music, you know, like 
like Jerry Cantrell of Alice in Chains or Silverchair. Remember Silverchair? Uh, Porno for Pyros is doing Satellite of Love. It's, uh, it's a song by Velvet Underground. Lou Reed wrote it, I believe. Satellite of Love. And this Porno for Pyros version is just atrocious. I feel like mid-90s, there was just a lot of atrocious sort of grunge-related rock that was just terrible. Cracker, remember Cracker? Cypress Hill, Filter, uh, that song is uh, big in the you know is big in the movie. You know, Hey Man, Nice Shot. Remember that song by Hey Man? Nah. You know, this is, I don't know. It's a big big song at the time. Uh, there's a Jack Black is is in it, and he has a Soundgarden t shirt on. Um, Pagers. There's a lot of there's a pager prominently in the in the movie. Remember pagers and. It's like pagers again, huge from like 1990 to 1998. I would say somewhere you know, everyone, everyone cool, anyone who was anyone had a pager. And then when cell phones became prominent, then obviously no one had pagers anywhere. I was very late to the pager game in the 90s. I got a job in the late 90s that required me to be on call as a therapist. And therefore, the people needed to be able to contact me at any time. And I hated the idea of wearing a a clip-on pager on my belt all the time. I just, because I would have to carry it around with me everywhere. I mean, and I just thought, I don't want a pager like that. But my friend, who was always like, you know, cutting edge, he had a pager that was a watch. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. It's a watch pager. You know, you just wear this watch pager. That's pretty cool. Well, the technology wasn't so great. And so the watch pager was actually very large. The, the, the pager, you know, they had shrunk it down significantly from the actual pager, but it was not, it was nowhere near the size of a watch. It was still a very large watch. Although in today's watches, it's probably smaller than most watches. People wear enormous watches. It's like everyone's flavor flavor these days. And so I had this um, gold metal, sort of brass metal watch that was a pager. And, uh, and then like a couple years later, cell phones became ubiquitous. And so that pager watch uh, went the way of the dodo bird. I wish I still had that thing. Does anyone out there save their old cell phones? I have saved all my old cell phones, I think except for my first cell phone, if I'm not mistaken. It is... It is these, you know, when you have a cell phone, I don't know, this is just me, is when you have a cell phone, it's the one thing that you have in your life. It's the one object that you could say is is connected to your being, right? And when you move on to another model, like I had a Razor, remember the, remember the Motorola Razor? I had one of those. And when I ever, I sometimes I'm rummaging through my, through my box of old stuff. And I come across that razor cell phone that it's an old flip phone. Right. And I just, I, all the, all these memories come back to me of like texting with that. <laughs> Remember how you used to have to text using the number keypad, you know, and just all these memories come back. And I, I don't know, I, I keep my old cell phones now. Um, okay. Cordless phones. Remember cordless phones. Remember when people had, you know, actual landlines. 
in the middle of the movie, there's this scene where they're driving up this windy road and this song comes on and it's like this sort of Jimi Hendrix style wah-wah guitar solo. And it's, it's just terrible. It's just the worst song. But, you know, it, at the time, it would have been, you know, super cool. It, but hearing it now, it just sounds terrible. Another thing in the movie they depict that's very mid-90s is quirky coffee shops. Now, when you think of a coffee shop... You think of a Starbucks, you think of, you know, things like that. But in the but before Starbucks was a thing, or before it was big anyway, you know, around the country, in the States anyway, and particularly in Seattle, uh, and even going back to the 80s, it was like this. Their coffee was, was drank by young people at these super quirky coffee shops. I guess Friends, the coffee shop and Friends is kind of an example of that. We had uh, a number of really famous quirky coffee shops in Seattle. Uh, a number of them were on uh, Capitol Hill. There were some in the U District. Um, last exit to Brooklyn in the U District, I would go to all the time uh, on Capitol Hill, Bauhaus, and um, uh, what's the one on uh, Pike? Uh, oh God! Anyway, it was a, it was a really famous one, and they were super cool. You know, you'd walk in, and the the, the decor would be kind of woodsy and kind of collegey, if that makes any sense. And there, every seat was different, and everyone kind of looked strewn about, and everyone's drinking their coffee and their espresso. And back then, you didn't have lattes; you just had espresso. You know, and um, you would uh, have every coffee cup was different, and it, and they, they always had cool music playing, and um, and so they depicted that kind of uh, in a in a scene, and it brought me back to. Of course, we still have quirky coffee shops, but I feel like the romantic days of quirky coffee shops in Seattle have been long dead. Also, in the movie, and it just brought me back to the '90s was MTV News. I remember MTV News was perhaps my main source of news in the mid nineties. Uh, it sounds ridiculous today. Can you imagine anyone in there? You know, I was 25 and I got a lot of my news from MTV. Imagine a current 25 year old getting all their news from MTV. I mean, that's ridiculous, right? But you know, MTV, they had actual, they had actual news. People actually tuned into the news on MTV and you got, you know, rock news and this kind of stuff. Um, Another thing they depicted well about the 90s was court cases. You know, obviously OJ and was it the Menendez brothers or Mendez brothers? There was just a lot of really big court cases in the 90s and they depicted that well. Um, I, I don't know if this is a 90s thing in general or just my 90s, but pickup basketball was also depicted pretty well. You know, just like white guys who are kind of good at basketball, you know, good enough to, to play, but not, not really good, but at the same time, like really into pickup basketball. And in the nineties, I was, you know, me and my friends were really into pickup basketball and none of us were good, you know, like we were all terrible, but we loved it. You know, just like go down to the elementary school, uh, in the summer and play on the crappy blacktop and, you know, injure yourself and get in fights with your friends and stuff. Another mid nineties thing, sleepless in Seattle is, uh, prominently, um, in the, uh, in the movie. Uh, 
Sleepless in Seattle. Yeah, huge movie in the 90s. I still, when I go outside of the country or outside of the region, you know, I'll say, oh, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Seattle. Oh, oh like Sleepless in Seattle. And I'm just like, okay, yeah, yeah, exactly, like Sleepless in Seattle. Um, another part that I think is sort of 90s is there was original Star Trek references, like um, Jim Carrey's characters, like, we're like Kirk and Spock, and and we're fighting, you know, and they play that music, you know, you know, well, I feel like today, particularly young people today, many of them, my guess is, is have never even seen an episode of old Star Trek. And if they have, they probably aren't super familiar with it. Well, for us, 20 somethings, because this is, this movie was definitely geared towards 20 somethings for us, 20 somethings in the, in the nineties, when we were young in the 70s and 80s, there was nothing on TV. We don't, and we didn't have cable. We just had like uh, just a couple channels with reruns. And well, and I, maybe one channel with rerun when I was a kid. And, and Star Trek was always one of those reruns. And so even though Star Trek, the original uh, series, I hate to say this as a massive Trekkie myself, but it's not a great show. It doesn't really hold up. Let's just put it that way. And yet we all watched it because the only other things were on were my three sons and leave it to beaver and Hogan's heroes. And I would watch all those shows too. And therefore become all of us became extremely familiar with particular shows, even though we didn't really like it very much. And so when in the cable guy, he's referring to, uh, original Star Trek references, my guess is, is most of us, you know, understood it. I certainly did when I was watching it in the 90s. Also, another massive thing about the 90s that I was reminded of while watching the movie was huge speakers. You know, now when you think about a really nice sound system in your house, you know, like a Sonos or a Bose system, you think elegant, you think small, you think subwoofer, and then you think little speakers that blend nicely into your furniture. Well, in the 80s and 90s, as the 80s, uh, 70s, uh, speakers got kind of big. 80s, they got bigger. 90s, there was a point where speakers were huge. And, and we know now that you don't need the speakers to be massive in order for it to be a good sound. But there was a time when everyone equated the bigger your speaker cabinets, the better quality sound you had. And that's ridiculous when you actually understand how speakers and sound actually works. The way they do it now is actually much more intelligent where you have a subwoofer that actually, you know, has the bass and then you have separate speakers that do the, you know, mid, mid range and high end. And you can get a lot more bang for your buck that way, a lot more bang for the space you're using. But in the, 80s and early 90s, people would just have huge speakers. Everyone had huge speakers in the house. I remember just having these humongous cabinets in our living room. And, you know, I was just like, well, of course. They were like pieces of furniture, honestly, is what you had. You just, you, in, you know, just for a regular TV watching, you needed these mammoth speakers. So that was definitely <laughs> portrayed in the movie. Um, they also portrayed the way that you that way that we kind of see karaoke at the time. I mean, now everyone's saying karaoke. I mean, you ask any millennial and 
facing karaoke on a regular basis. But there was a time when karaoke or karaoke, karaoke as us Japanese people call it, um, there was a time when karaoke was actually extremely foreign to people. And doing it what was very strange, you know, it was very odd behavior and sort of narcissistic behavior. And um, as a Japanese-American, I uh, knew about how big karaoke was in Japan and started kind of thinking, oh, you know, that, that's kind of fun. You know, you get together and you sing songs. And so I think I took to karaoke. Plus, I'm a singer. You know, me and Alberto are both singers. And so I think we took to it. Uh, and we're both, you know, slight, slightly narcissistic, so we take to it more than others. But um, anyway, they portray kind of the the stigma, the nerdy stigma around karaoke in the movie, I thought. Another part, <laughs> there's just so many things about the 90s I was reminded of. Another part of the 90s I was reminded of was midriff outfits. There's a an attractive woman in about the middle of the movie, and, you know, she's supposed to be this really hot girl. And... She has this massive midriff outfit on, and her and her outfit just looks so funny. It has like leopard print, and she's supposed to be just you know a hot girl at a party that Broderick you know likes. And this midriff is just so that you know. I remember in the nineties. I remember like okay, pants are getting lower and lower, you know, because that that the cut of pants that, that you know in the eighties women wore pants that were really high that are now back in style. But in the nineties, they got lower and lower and lower and the shirts got shorter and shorter and shorter. So like there was, you know, in the early nineties, you would just see a little bit of midriff. Maybe if the woman kind of turned a certain way, you're like, Oh, I saw her belly button there for a second. And then by 94, you saw maybe three inches of midriff all the time. And then by 96, you were seeing like six inches of midriff all the time. And when I saw that in the movie, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember like everyone had this huge midriff showing all the time. <laughs> and I don't know. It was just sort of particular to that. Um, also, I was reminded of a 90s phenomenon, which was that Jim Carrey was a massive star, which I kind of forget. I mean... He was paid, apparently for this movie, $20 million, which was, I think, a, a record high at, the, at that time in 96. And, you know, he had made uh, The Mask, uh, Ace Ventura, you know, these kinds of movies. He was huge. And he was at the top of his comedic game. I mean, when you watch him in this movie, the, he, no one else could have pulled off what he did in this movie, his, the way in which he moves, his facial expressions, his tone of voice. It's just so, I don't know. I mean, first I, I know some people hate his characters, but you have to, at the, if you dislike it, you at the very least have to respect it because it's, it's some, it's a sight to see. And when I was watching this movie the other day, I was like, wow, he was very good at doing that. And no one else has ever done what Jim Carrey has done like ever, whether or not you like it or not, you just have to say that. I think, um, the last thing I'll say that I was reminded about the nineties and this movie was how big the sixties were in the late eighties, early nineties. There was a huge sixties revival that I was absolutely a part of. 
myself. I, in the 80s, wore paisley and was super into psychedelia and would wear John Lennon sunglasses and, and you know, really idolized the 60s and the hippie movement and all that stuff. When I went to Haight-Ashbury uh, in San Francisco in uh, the late 80s, I was just like in heaven. I was like, I'm at... I'm at ground zero. I'm at the birth of hippie culture. This is so great. And by 96, I think it was starting to die down, but it's still pretty clearly infused in this movie and you can kind of see it, or at least they're making fun of it or something. But anyway, okay, let's talk about the movie after a break. Let's take a break. All right, we're back again. If you haven't already, please become a patron of the podcast. If you have been on the fence about that, uh, do so now. Uh, we're sort of seeing an upsurge. I, for some reason, so I started the patron thing about a year ago, and there was an immediate surge of a bunch of you know very loyal people becoming patrons. Thank you so much for doing that, people. And then in this last couple months, there's been another surge. I, I don't know if it's like fall or something. Maybe fall is a time when people decide to take action along those lines. So if you're on the fence, do so. Anyway, okay, so let's talk about the movie, just, you know, the production and stuff. Again, 1996, directed by Ben Stiller. This was his second directorship. His first was two years earlier, Reality Bites. Remember that movie, Reality Bites? So he made Reality Bites, and then he directed The Cable Guy. Then uh, five years later, he made Zoolander, and then seven years after that was his fourth director movie in which he made Tropic Thunder. And then his fifth movie was in 2013, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. So we would say that Ben Stiller is a pretty good director because I, I like all those movies. Although I haven't seen Reality Bites since I saw it in the theater back in 94. I suspect that Reality Bites doesn't hold up, but uh, <laughs> I remember liking it at the time. Judd Apatow helped write and produce this movie. It's one of his first movies. He was also involved in Happy Gilmore that very same year, so it was a big year for Judd Apatow. Again, stars Jim Carrey, Matthew Broderick. Other stars, there's so many stars in this movie, and when I was watching it, I was like, oh my God, there's so many stars, because I think when I saw it originally, I had no idea who these people were, but they're all, um, uh, now you would all recognize them. Leslie Mann, who, you know, actually married Judd Apatow, right? Um, they actually met uh, on the set, if I'm remembering right. Um, Jack Black is in the movie, young, very young Jack Black. Eric Roberts, Julia Roberts' older brother. Owen Wilson is in the movie. Janine Garofalo. David Cross is in the movie. David Cross. If you know who David Cross is, uh, you know he's awesome. Never nudes, David Cross. Um, he is a very small part in this movie. It's almost insulting how small of a part he is. I don't even know if he has any lines. Um, Andy Dick is in the movie. I met Andy Dick in a bathroom in LA and uh, we had words with each other. (laughs) That's a story for another time. Uh, Bob Odenkirk uh, is also in this movie. You might know him from Breaking Bad. And Kyle Gass from Tenacious D. Kyle Gass is in this movie. It's just like, you know, all these greats in this movie. Uh, apparently, many of these people are from the Ben Stiller show. And so 
uh, you know, so Ben Stiller obviously brought them over. Um, another sort of notable thing about this movie, I think, is that it's sort of the beginning of the rise of what we call cringe comedy. Cringe comedy is, you know, like The Office, especially the original British Office show, where you have, you know, uh, what's his face? Well, at least the American Office, you have Michael Scott, right? And how cringeworthy the comedy is, you know, someone just acting extremely racist, or but they don't know they're being racist, and and or other kind of cringe comedy would be like Curb Your Enthusiasm or something. Uh, I, I feel like um, The Cable Guy was kind of the beginning of that. And maybe it was a little before its time. And so people didn't really, because they didn't do that well with the critics. And so I think people didn't really understand it. It, it came across as perhaps a little too annoying or something. But anyway, a um, little fun fact here is Jim Carrey's character was originally written for Chris Farley. But Farley had other movies he was involved in at the time, didn't have time. Like, I think he was filming Black Sheep at the time, which was, I think, the follow-up to Tommy Boy, if I'm not mistaken. The movie did not do well in the box office. People said that it didn't do well because Jim Carrey deviated from his normal normal roles, you know. They said that Jim Carrey decided to do a dark comedy, and therefore that's why it didn't work. And as I was saying earlier, Jim Carrey was a huge star at the time, and that's why he was paid a record amount for this movie. Um, because in the last two years, he had humongous movies like Ace Ventura, The Mask, Dumb and Dumber. Uh, those three movies came out in the same year, 1994. Can you imagine that? Ace Ventura, The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, those three movies same year. <laughs> those those are huge Jim Carrey movies. All came out in the same year. It's crazy. Um, it's also uh, the, the Cable Guy is considered to be one of the earliest frat pack movies. Instead of Rat Pack, you had the frat pack films because Ben Stiller, Jack Black, Judd Apatow, Owen Wilson, these kind of guys are uh, involved in this movie and therefore it's considered one of the early frat pack movies other people in the frat pack are paul rudd seth rogan james franco will ferrell and all those kind of guys um as i said earlier judd apatow actually met his future wife while shooting this movie leslie mann they're still married they have kids uh rotten tomatoes gave it 54 percent roger ebert included the cable guy in his worst of the year list for 1996 but it won some 1997 MTV Movie Awards, including Best Comic Performance and Best Villain, won by Jim Carrey both. So those are the fun facts about the movie The Cable Guy. Again, uh, this was all prompted by a listener who wanted me to uh, talk about the borderline elements in this movie. And again, my hypothesis is that he absolutely fits the criteria, but does not actually fit the criteria. (laughs) And that's the weirdness about personality disorders. Well, that does it for this episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. (laughs) 